Please take your Bibles and open up to Psalm 97. Psalm 97. That's where we're going to be this morning. You know, if you do any amount of philosophical reading, you quickly come to realize that one of the biggest philosophical questions in the world is one of justice. Where is justice found? And there's a number of different ways uh, that this question can be asked, but all philosophers have to concern themselves with this matter of justice because it's, it's very obvious to everyone, Christian or not, that our world is broken. While they may not be able to pin down exactly what the problem is, everyone knows that there's something terribly wrong with our world. Injustice seems to be everywhere. So where is justice to be found? Well, the Christian faith has distinct answers to these questions. They're intrinsically tied to a right understanding of who God is. His existence, his character, and his consistency with his character. And the passage before us this morning, Psalm 97, actually answers these questions about justice and righteousness. It answers these questions and not only does that, but goes so far as to draw out uh, not just where justice is found, but what the reality of justice should rightly produce. Now, uh, to be totally candid with you, as we turn to Psalm 97 this morning, we can't be 100% certain about what events the author is alluding to in this psalm. He speaks of a manifestation of God's judgment in Psalm 97. But this can be taken a few different ways. It's written, we know, after the release of the Israelites from Babylonian captivity. So it could be concerning God's judgment on Babylon specifically. But it draws on some language that some other biblical authors have used at other moments of God's judgment. So it could be a reflection on those times. There's some language of finality here. And so it could be anticipating the return of the Messiah. For what it's worth, I take it as a blend of all three of these things, ultimately anticipating the return of Jesus. However, what's very clear in this psalm is that the author has in mind as a theme the righteousness of God. And as we'll see as we work through it, he especially wants us to consider the righteousness of God in his judgment of the wicked. The author is drawing our attention to three main things in this psalm. First is the reality of the divine. The second is the reality of the divide. And the third is a response of devotion. From start to finish, the author's progression of thought goes like this. The Lord reigns righteously, and judgment is an expression of that righteous reign. And this judgment is received differently by different people. And his judgments should lead God's people to devotion. So, three points. The reality of the divine, the reality of the divide, and the response of devotion. That in mind, let's read this psalm together now. Psalm 97. Hear this reading of God's word. 
The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Fire goes before Him and burns up His adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim His righteousness, and all the peoples see His glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boasts in worthless idols. Worship Him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of His saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you His righteous, and give Him give thanks to His holy name. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, will you? Father, this morning we are coming to consider things that are too wonderful for us. And they are certainly too wonderful for me to explain. So Lord, I pray now that as we come to your word and we sit under your word, that you would give light to it. Father, give light to your word. Keep me free from error and give understanding of who you are. Help us to see your righteousness. Increase our vision of you, God, that our devotion to you would also grow. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The author begins his writing in Psalm 97 by reflecting on the reality of the divine. And in so doing, the first thing he brings to our attention is that it is the Lord who reigns, meaning that the Lord rules in authority like a king. But unlike any earthly king, the Lord's reign is limited in no way. The psalmist says that Because of his reign, the earth should rejoice. And why should all the earth rejoice? Because it's over all the earth that he reigns. Right out of the gate, the psalmist wants to establish that God is unique in his authority and that his is absolute authority. Whenever I read lines of scripture like this, I'm reminded of that quote from R.C. Sproul uh, reflected in Gideon's prayer earlier, actually. Uh, when Sproul says that there is not one maverick molecule in the universe. Over all of that which God creates, he maintains control. And the psalmist labors for clarity here, commanding that the many coastlands would be glad. And using that term coastlands, What's meant is the nations. The writer is saying that across the globe, to the farthest and smallest nations, people should be made glad by the reign of God. But but why? Why is global gladness a fitting response to the absolute reign of God? 
It's because of the character of God's reign. In the verses that follow, we're told of the nature of God and what his nature means for his activity as a sovereign ruler. Look with me at verse 2. The psalmist says of God, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Now you may ask, what does this communicate about the nature of God? Well, remember, in the Old Testament, when the Lord would condescend to meet with his servant or, or make his presence known to his people, he would cover himself with a thick cloud. And God tells us plainly in Exodus 33 why he does this. He tells Moses there, no one can see me and live. The the brightness of the glory of God is too much for man to behold, you see. So the psalmist describes the Lord who reigns, and he's underscoring that God is a glorious God. So wonderful is he that we can't even see him or we die. How wonderful is that? I mean, that's glory, right? But but the author, he actually has a particular characteristic in mind that contributes to this radiant glory, that helps make up this radiant glory of God. And that characteristic is the righteousness of God. Look at the rest of the sentence. You can see it plainly. We're brought first to contemplate the glory of God, too wonderful to behold. And then in the same sentence, you see, we're told that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Now, in the Hebrew Old Testament, righteousness and justice are not two different things. They're they're synonymous with one another. To be righteous is to be just, and to do justice is to do that which is right. And the throne is the place from which kings rule. It's the seat from which they issue decrees and execute judgments. As we meditate on the reign of the true king, we're told that his rule is characterized by righteousness. It's the very basis of his throne, we're told. And really, what the psalmist is getting at here is that God's own righteousness is made evident through his rule, you see. It's made evident in his reign because we know that There's no standard of goodness outside of God that he's conforming to, right? There's no standard of goodness that's informing how God rules and conducts himself. That would be to say that there's something better than God himself, which is impossible. Please understand, what makes something right or righteous is that it's consistent with who God is and how he's built his universe, You see, he's the creator. And being the creator, he gets to set the rules. It's like when you were a kid and you would make up games when you got bored. Well, who got to set the rules for those games? You did, because you made them up, right? Well, the same is true. God has all the authority to determine what's right because we live in his universe For the life that he provides in his universe, he defines the thoughts and behaviors that are right. And being an all-good, all-righteous creator, the standards of righteousness are those that are consistent with himself. And unlike kids making up games in a neighborhood, 
He's totally consistent in this. He's totally consistent to reign in righteousness. Just think with me for a moment. Have you ever asked why God gives the commands that he does? Why does God say, don't commit adultery? Why does he say, don't bear false witness? God didn't select his commands arbitrarily, so why these? The answer is because they're an overflow of who he is. God forbids adultery because he's a faithful, covenant-keeping God. Therefore, we are to pattern after him in faithfulness and covenant-keeping. He forbids lying because he's a truthful God, and so we are to pattern after him in truthfulness. Do you see, righteousness is simply that which conforms to God. And the commands that were given in Scripture bear witness to the fact that he reigns in a manner consistent with his righteous character. His his righteousness is indeed the foundation of his throne. But friends, the world over which God reigns is not altogether consistent with who he is. In fact, we know all too well that this world is not righteous at all. So the psalmist, as he continues, his language clearly shifts to that of judgment. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5. We're told of fire, lightnings, and the undoing of the earth, all of which are used throughout scriptures as symbols of the Lord's wrath and judgment. What the author is telling us is that the judgment of God is actually an expression of his righteous reign. In describing the Lord's judgment, it's made clear that it is absolute and unstoppable. Verse 3 makes this clear in speaking of the, the fire that goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. When the Lord sets out to judge those in opposition to him, there is no resistance, is what he's getting at here. His adversaries are consumed in an instant, and there is no escape. All around, they are met with the white-hot wrath of Almighty God. Even the ground shudders at the coming of God's judgment. The earth trembles in verse 4, we read. And the mountains melt like wax in verse 5, meaning they get out of the way of the Lord as He pursues His enemies. The imagery is intended to communicate that there is nothing that can stand in God's way or slow him down in his righteous judgment. You know, for soldiers in battle, hills and mountains present a problem. It's extremely hard to advance if your enemy has the high ground. That's why in, in stories, uh, there's always this mustering up of courage before this declaration that we're going to take that mountain, right? But God knows nothing of that. When the Lord sets out after his adversaries, the earth trembles, and what we would consider immovable melts like wax before him. So there is no hiding from his awful judgment. And at this, what does the heavenly host proclaim, according to the psalmist? Look at verse 6. The heavens 
proclaim His righteousness. God is not, as some would have us to think, being a bully or unjust in any way. It is right for God to be consistent in holding His creatures to the unchanging standard that He set for them. And so as He executes His judgments, the angelic hosts remind us that this is right. And this is who God is. But the judgments of God which flow from His nature are are received differently by different people. This leads to the second point of the psalm, which is the reality of the divide. As we come to verse 7, we find that when the Lord comes in judgment, there is a deep divide in what that means for idolaters and what it means for the people of God. We already know from verse 3 that the Lord's adversaries will be consumed in a fire of His wrath. But verse 7 tells us also that in judgment, all worshipers of images are put to shame. And we need to notice something here. In verse 8, we learn of a very different reality for God's people. Look, verse 8 says, Zion hears and is glad. Now, what's notable about this is that there are no other groups mentioned in reference to the judgment of God. There's just idolaters and the redeemed. Zion is in reference to that Old Testament corporate people who belong to God. In the original context, the reference to worshipers of images is likely the author reflecting on the way that the Babylonians actually would bow down to man-made idols. But this, this truth is the same today. The the truth is that this same division holds true in every culture at all times. There are only worshipers of the true God and worshipers of false gods. In the Western world, we may not bow down to worship physical idols, but our culture is filled with idolatry all the same. Let's remember just what idolatry is. It's simply substituting God with something else. Giving devotion and attention to a created thing rather than the creator. People in our culture devote themselves to the pursuit of money because it provides a sense of stability when in fact only God can provide security for your future. Some look to things like alcohol or food or pornography as means of deliverance for them. All of this is is idolatry. And the foundation of all idolatry is the same. It's a worship of self that says, I know better than God. I know better than God what works for my deliverance. Or, Or even, I know better than God because I don't need deliverance. Do you see how idolatry transcends culture? This is not locked in to the people who receive Psalm 97. This is totally applicable to our world today. Idolatry transcends culture. And do you see the arrogant self-exaltation at the root of idolatry? This is why in the meditation on God's judgment, the psalmist is underscoring the righteousness of God in judgment. It is right that as verse 7 says, all worshipers of images are put 
to shame. The truth will come out to the disgrace of those who trust in any but the Lord to deliver them. And there will only be humiliation for those who are pridefully trusting in insufficient saviors. If you read the end of verse 7, at the thought of this event, the psalmist actually taunts these objects of worship of the people, fully knowing the inability of inanimate objects to respond. He says, worship him, all you gods, as though to sarcastically come to the realization, oh, that's right, you can't. And you can't save anyone either. But there's a a deep division here because the people of God are not filled with shame on the day of His judgment. Now verse 8 tells us that Zion hears of it and is glad. The daughters of Judah who rejoice in the next line is just another way of referencing the redeemed. But a couple of questions have to be answered at this point. The first is a a why question, and the second is a how. First of all, we should ask, why is it that God's people are rejoicing at the devastation of God's enemies here? Well, the text answers this question. Look at verse 8. It says, Zion hears and is glad. Why? Because of your judgments, O Lord. So, you see, the people of God are simply glad to see God vindicate Himself. They rejoice at the reality that God holds true to His character and His Word. And and they're glad that He deals with sin as it ought to be dealt with in a glorious display of His wrath, punishing all that is inconsistent with Himself and the way that He's made His universe. This leads to the second question, and that is, how in the world are the people of God not subject to this wrath as well? Their nature, our nature this morning, is exactly the same as those identified as idolaters. We're born under the curse of Adam, naturally being enemies of God, and we are often guilty of the same kinds of behaviors as those identified as idolaters. So what is categorically different about the people of God? Well, if you consider verse 9 carefully, the author actually reveals it to us. Verse 8 tells us, Zion hears and is glad because of the Lord's judgment. Then follow the thought process. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. And here's the kicker. The people of God believe that. This is what separates the people of God from the rest of the world. Even though they've been born with the same sinful nature and are prone to the same sinful rebellion against God, God's people have believed that the Lord is most high. He is the only creator of heaven and earth. Therefore, He is the only one worthy of worship. In the mind of the psalmist, it is faith that distinguishes Zion from idolaters. And and this is the case all through the Bible, Old Testament and New. Think back to Abraham, the the first character that we hear declared righteous. 
The scripture says of him, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now you say, well, God making distinction based on their belief doesn't seem like he's upholding his standard of righteousness like the psalmist just said he always does. So is God being unrighteous in this, only requiring faith? And I must tell you, that's, that's a good question. It's a legitimate question. But the answer is no. You see, it's actually what God's people put their faith in that makes all the difference. That's why the psalmist points to the Lord as the object of their faith. And remember, in the storyline of the Old Testament, remember, what were God's people trusting Him for? Abraham was trusting God to deal with the problem of sin through the offspring that God had promised. Moses and the Israelites were trusting in the offspring that was typified in the sacrificial lamb. From David on, God's people were trusting in the offspring who was the descendant of David, specifically, who was typified in the sacrificial lamb. And of course, we know that object of faith has come to us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And this sacrificial lamb, the descendant of David, he came in order to bear the sins of those who looked to him for it. So that... God could have mercy while maintaining His righteousness, you see. Paul explains this very clear in Romans 3, saying this. Listen carefully. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So listen, if you're here this morning and you're asking that question, where is justice in the Christian worldview? This is your answer. And it's also the heart of the gospel, friends. For those united to Christ by faith, all the justice of God due to them has been executed because it's been poured out on Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb, the offspring that all those in the Old Testament were looking for and trusting God for. But what about those not united to Christ in faith? Where is justice for them? Or for those not looking to Christ in faith, not trusting Him to take the wrath of God from them, justice will be poured out on them on the last day. This, you see, is the reality of the divide. This is why Zion can rejoice, but idolaters are put to shame. It all hinges on the object of their worship, the object of their faith. And friends, If you're here this morning and and you're not trusting in Christ Jesus to take the wrath of God from you, if you are one of those not looking to Him for that, then I plead with you to repent. Turn to Christ now in faith, trusting in the work that He's done, 
so that it would be credited to you as righteousness. Be sure, friend, if God has not spared His Son to satisfy His wrath for His children, neither will He spare you. So turn to Christ in faith. Be able to rejoice with the people of God that He could both maintain His righteousness and make a way for you to be declared righteous. Revel with us at the absolute wisdom and infinite power of God that it takes to do that. And we as Christians have to understand that this is precisely what this meditation should produce in us. With with our hearts made glad by the way that God works His justice with certainty, we respond in devotion, friends. That's the last point that the psalmist wants to make. The righteous judgment of God should produce a response of devotion. Specifically, we're called to devote ourselves to God in two ways. We find the first one in verse 10. See it there. The psalmist calls out, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. The idea couldn't be more clear. If you identify with this God of righteousness, you should despise what He despises. And it's clear from His coming judgment that He despises sin. And remember what the the Lord Jesus says. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You know, that almost sounds easier than what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist says we should not just abstain from evil, but hate it. I mean, that's heart level. Hate that evil. We've already established that our hearts are at base the same as the idolaters. So how do you change your heart? How do you grow in a hatred for evil? Well, if you notice, both Jesus' command to keep His commandments and the psalmist's call to hate evil are both bound up in love for the Lord. You see, as our love and appreciation for who God is grows, so does our hatred for all that's opposed to Him. So how do we grow in our love and appreciation of God so that we would hate the evil that He hates? Well, the answer sounds simple, but it's true. It is to meditate on God. Specifically, in light of this psalm, we understand that our love for God and hatred of evil grows as we meditate on the rightness of God and His ways. So, as a point of application this morning, brothers and sisters, perhaps today you should spend some time thinking about those sins that you've been struggling with as of late. And contemplate just how out of step those are with the character of God and how He's built His universe. Then, consider the commands of God's concerning those sins and contemplate the better life cultivated by submission to those commands. That's how you grow in a love for God, in an appreciation 
for His ways. That's how sanctification happens. But it doesn't happen without intentionality. You know, I was watching a documentary recently. I'm a curious guy, so I watch a a lot of random documentaries. My wife makes fun of me for this. So, Uh, but I'm just a curious guy. And so, this particular documentary that I was watching, it was about a design artist named Tinker Hatfield, who was responsible for designing Air Jordans. Maybe you've heard of these. Their shoes. In the, in the midst of the show, they asked Tinker where he drew his inspiration from. And as someone who's not artistic, his response struck me. He said, inspiration is for amateurs. The professionals just go to work. They go to work, and they sit at their desks, creating the opportunity for something creative to happen. And that's how we have to pursue hatred of sin, friends. By putting in the work. Far too many Christians have this idea of growing in sanctification that one day, when met with temptation, we're just going to be magically, uh, we're going to have this new inspiration that lifts us up to this next level of holiness so that you can defeat the sin. But that's not how it works. We must be proactive in cultivating a love for God and an appreciation for the things that uh, the, the world and things that He's designed them in the way that He's designed them. So that when we're met with temptation, it's not appealing to us, but repulsive. This is the idea of putting off and putting on that we read about earlier. It's why Paul says that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put, off the, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we grow in hatred of evil as we grow in our love for God and His righteousness. But there's something else that we're called to in light of God's righteous judgment in this psalm. Verse 12 tells us to rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to His holy name with the knowledge that God will not and cannot let the wicked go unpunished. The righteous should rejoice. See, the psalmist knows the human struggle of feeling like unrighteousness will never be held accountable. And that the people behind unrighteousness will never be held accountable. And you know, the truth is that apart from a divine sovereign, there is no ultimate accountability. There is no ultimate justice. But praise God, because the Christian worldview actually provides this. Praise God, because He, in fact, does reign over all the earth and all the coastlands. He reigns sovereignly. Life can be very difficult for the faithful, no doubt. That's why verse 11 says, Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. 
You know where light is sown? In darkness. And joy is sown in despair. Yet even in darkness and despair, we're commanded to rejoice in the Lord and give thanks to His holy name. Because as surely as God's character is righteous, His reign is righteous. And if His reign is righteous, the wicked will be judged in righteousness. As surely as He has judged, excuse me, as surely as He has poured out judgment on His Son, For the sake of his children, he will, friends, pour out judgment on his enemies. And as hard and dark and despairing as the days for the righteous can be that are just trying to live faithfully, and sometimes you you just wonder if your prayers fall on deaf ears, if God really sees my struggle under the unrighteous, the scoffing, the persecution that you may endure for your faith. As sure as God has poured out His judgment on His Son for your sins, be sure, friends, that His judgment will be executed on the unrighteous. And in that, we can rejoice. So this morning, let us devote ourselves to rejoicing in the Lord and hating evil Because our God reigns and he judges sin gloriously and righteously. Amen? Amen. Pray with me.